Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the election due in Victoria in November is shaping up as one of the strangest in Australian history. It's difficult to imagine a government anywhere in the world with as toxic a record as the one led by Victorian Premier Dan Andrews. In a minute, I'll share with you some exclusive insight to the atmosphere inside Ambulance Victoria, where a new woke regime is causing despair among hardworking ambos and putting the community at significant risk. But first, let's remind ourselves of just how vicious, corrupt, and evasive the Victorian Labor government has been. It started with the government awarding a $30 million contract to Unified Security, an unvetted private firm from Sydney, to secure quarantine hotels for incoming Australians from overseas for three months from March 2020 at the start of the pandemic. The operation was a disaster. The virus escaped, which led to the deaths of more than 800 people. Unified Security has since gone broke. A subsequent inquiry into this fiasco in October 2020 struggled to find out how it was decided that Unified Security should be given that $30 million contract. Andrews himself agreed that the decision was the result of a, quote, creeping assumption. Phone records revealed how that creeping assumption spread. At 1.16 p.m. on March 27, 2020, Victorian Police Commissioner Graham Ashton told the head of the Premier's office, Chris Eccles, that he thought police would be used for security. But six, month, six minutes later, Ashton told his counterpart in the Federal Police that private security would be used. What happened in that six minutes that changed Ashton's mind? Eccles, who remember was the Premier's right-hand man, originally told the inquiry that he couldn't recall contacting Ashton during those crucial minutes. When it later emerged that he had, Eccles immediately resigned. It bears repeating, this bungled operation, the result of a decision for which nobody accepted responsibility, led to the deaths of more than 800 Victorians. It was arguably the worst case of government incompetence in Australian peacetime history. The year before that, the Andrews government boasted that it had created a new crime, workplace manslaughter, which, quote, will send a strong message to employers that putting people's lives at risk in the workplace will not be tolerated, unquote. Last year, Andrews's critics were calling for him to be charged under those laws for putting lives at risk. In the end, the health department was charged with 58 offences regarding the bungled program and the fines were simply shuffled from one state department to another. No decision maker was or might ever be brought to account. Watching Andrews's press conferences from that time is astonishing even for non-Victorians. How did a government anywhere in Australia get away with this level of fear-mongering? 
If you can stay home, you must stay home. If you don't, you will do nothing but spread the virus and that will kill people. You will do nothing but spread the virus and that will kill people? You must stay home? Even then, this was clearly the hyperbole of a megalomaniac. Now we know that it was worse than that. It was an unnecessarily draconian response that probably killed more people than it saved. The Andrews government has since become adept at obfuscation. Two weeks ago, it released a damning report into deaths caused by ambulance delays on a Saturday morning before a major AFL final. Now it's doing it again with two more potentially damning reports. Yesterday, The Age reported that, quote, two independent reviews into Victoria's COVID rules that have been delayed for months will not be made public before the state heads to the polls, unquote. Health Minister Mary Ann Thomas, who received the reports last week, says she wants to read them carefully before tabling them, which means the public won't see them until after the election. If ever there was a reason to turf out a government, hiding an investigation into a disastrous and destructive two-year lockdown would be it. But that isn't stopping the Andrews government from introducing more harsh restrictions on citizens, this time regarding where they can go in national parks. Stray off a designated path and you could, under these proposed rules, be fined $924. Similar, similar penalties apply for swimming or rock climbing without a permit. Whether these rules will protect the environment, as they are claimed to do, is debatable. What is much clearer, though, is the government's contempt for ordinary people who can't even be trusted to go bushwalking without causing irreparable damage. Which brings me to the destruction of workplace culture at Ambulance Victoria. The government recently decided the service was promoting the, quote, stereotype of paramedics as white, male, of able body and mind, confident, stoic, and the family breadwinner, unquote. It hired six new diversity officers to implement a change to this culture. Last week, I received an email from a Victoria ambulance officer with 30 years experience, who said new staff now ridicule and bully him for being white and middle-aged. He said, quote, this aspect of workplace culture at Ambulance Victoria is problematic for many respected and incredibly experienced staff. He says new staff with a woke agenda are making vexatious allegations against long-term managers like himself. His email is disturbing because it confirms the Andrews government's plan to change the culture, but in the end, it's not for the better. My correspondent forlornly warned that these changes to the culture at Ambulance Victoria were, quote, putting the community at great risk, unquote. And to cap it all off, the state's corruption watch watchdog released a report in July describing widespread, widespread malfeasance in the Labor government. Victorian ombudsman Deborah Glass said, quote, the report illustrates a catalogue 
of unethical behaviour ranging from the hiring of unqualified people into publicly funded roles, using those roles to support factional work, nepotism, forging signatures, bullying and attempts to interfere with the government grants process." Unquote. Andrews, who wasn't personally implicated, admitted the Labor government had committed, quote, absolutely disgraceful behaviour, unquote. How can a government with such an appalling record of poor governance, oppressing its citizens and even endangering people's lives, rate anything above single figures in the polls? Thankfully, the government's poll results are heading south. We can only hope that th that, that slide come election day turns into a majority of voters waiting on their verandas with baseball bats. Well, that segues nicely into my next guest, one of the leading critics of the Victorian government for more than two years now, Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs. In a moment, we'll discuss the Andrews government's diminishing probability of being returned at the state election in November, but first I'd like to get his opinion about Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's appalling faux pas on the weekend. As we all know, Albo met King Charles at Buckingham Palace on the weekend. He said protocol prevented him from divulging what was discussed, but, but, Albo just couldn't resist it. He said, quote, King Charles, of course, has been on the record of his views over a very long period of time about environmentalist issues and including about climate change. I think climate change shouldn't be seen as a political issue. It should be seen as an issue that is about humanity and about our very quality of life and survival as a world." Unquote. Oh, well, that's all right then. Only one problem, the climate crisis that Charles has been espousing for more than a decade and which he promised the day he acceded to the throne he would abandon is not even happening. As The Weekend Australian reported, an investigation by Italian researchers has found that, quote, on the basis of observational data, the climate crisis that, according to many sources, we are experiencing today is not evident yet." Unquote. Let's get Gideon Rosner in to discuss this. Gideon, welcome. Great to be here as always, my friend. Lots to discuss. Plenty to discuss today, there sure is. Gideon, let's start by approaching this from the Republican perspective. Australian Republicans mm. say a foreign monarch should not have ultimate power over our political system, which is why we need to become a republic, according to them. Yet here's Albo trying to enlist the king in his climate crusade. Gideon, is it hypocritical for a Republican to seek help from the king in a political campaign? I don't think it matters whether you're a Republican or a, a constitutional monarchist or not. I think it just shows a, a real disrespect for our protocols and a real ignorance of how this country should be working. I mean, the reason we accept a constitutional monarchy is because, because of just that. It is constitutional. The elected government, all matters political, are determined by the parliament, whether it may be Mid Westminster or Canberra. Um, for the sovereign to bang on about political issues, to disclose a feeling one way or the other, something that Queen Elizabeth II never did in 70 years, 
deal's off as soon as that happens. And and I always used to say, if Prince Charles becomes King Charles and we hear the same crap about the Great Reset and climate and banning McDonald's, which he shamefully said about 10 years ago, well, that's it. I'm going to put a bloody bandana on and join the ARM myself if that's, you know, because, again, deal is off. Uh, it just shows... Uh, again, it would take a Republican almost like Anthony Albanese to show such an ignorance of how our system works. Well, is climate change really above politics anyway? Well, no, it isn't. It is. That's what makes this such a an infuriating issue for those of us, firstly, as people who actually respect how our system works, but secondly, as climate sceptics. I mean, not only is it not above politics, it is a matter of contention. Even if you agree, if you agree with the doomsday scenarios about the polar bears and so on, um, it, 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 the solutions to it are too often bundled up inside that basket of things you can't talk about, up to and including the fact that the solution is windmills and solar panels, which I'm sorry, do not uh, work. Um, for the Again, for the King of England to be talking, dictating our domestic energy supply to a, a domestic energy policy to us from his ivory tower in the UK, uh, again, that is an automatic deal breaker as far as I'm concerned when it comes to the constitutional monarchy, and that will be the end of the monarchy. Thankfully, King Charles, all, all, all early indications are that he seems a little bit smarter than that at this point. What's your prognosis, though, Gideon? Do you think he will hold true to his promise that he's going to abandon those causes? Look, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Again, so far, so good. Um, and that's what makes this difficult. I, you know, I, I'm a bit of a wither vein on the Republic, I'll be honest, but I do respect the institution and I'm an admirer of the institution. Um, but at the same time, it looks like King Charles does. He spent a very, very long time learning at the knee of his mother. He knows what is appropriate for a monarch to do and what not to do. The first thing he said in his speech was, a lot of the causes to which I've dedicated my life I uh, can no longer do. So he actually understands that. He acknowledges that. So that's good. Uh, but will he be able to help himself? If he do, if, if enough people get into his ear and says, oh, no, 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 uh, Your Majesty, this isn't a political issue. You're not talking about tax rates or something here. Uh, this isn't an issue that affects all of us. Climate change is real. It's happening. Will he be able to, to help himself? I'm not sure. But look, so far, so good. I think that's the key takeaway. King Charles knows what his role is in the Constitutional Republic, even uh, if his Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, doesn't. Yeah, let's give him the benefit of the doubt so far. Now, you must have seen Graham Lloyd's report in The Weekend Australian explaining that the data shows we are not experiencing a climate crisis. Did this just confirm what common sense people know already? Well, yes, and that's what makes this so frustrating. I mean, even if you are under the of the view that anthropogenic carbon dioxide is causing ecological and environmental problems, fine. But so much of what we're told about climate change is so it, it's divorced from the realms of even what the IPCC says. No credible scientist, no credible scientist says things like, for example, we have 12 years left or the planet goes up in flames. Uh, a lot of these doomsday scenarios are not just divorced from the reality, but from the so the, the, the IPCC big science spin on reality. Uh, so, uh, look, as, uh, I, I defer to one of my favourite comedians of all time, the great Dennis Miller, who said, look, all I know is sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. And that bit in the middle, that's the weather. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Now, well, I mean, <laughs> the, the Andrews government is relying heavily on there actually being a climate crisis and, and enough people believing that it's happening. I mean, that, that government has demolished coal-fired power plants and is backing the building of hundreds of offshore windmills. Do you think the climate narrative is losing its credibility and will this affect the Victorian election in November? 
Look, what will affect the Victorian election, indeed all elections with this climate business, is when people start feeling pain. Never forget, never forget that jo- that Kevin Rudd, you know, did make a meal of climate change in 2007. It was one of the things we can't forget that catapulted him into the lodge. Uh, two, three years later, when he actually started to work out how to deal with climate, had to cut emissions and was uh, waving around his emissions trading scheme, that is when you saw an enormous groundswell of opposition to it because people uh, are, will- are willing to go along with a lot of this stuff until they realise that climate action isn't all windmills and bike paths. It actually will, by definition, require a change to how we live. And let me tell you something, when Australians are paying $3 a litre or somewhere there or somewhere north of there for a litre of petrol, they ain't going to be climate warriors anymore. Similarly, uh, when with Victoria, which we warned about from the energy market operator, when Victoria runs out of gas, people can't take hot showers anymore. I think you'll see a lot more people saying, hang on, why is it we have to wear all this pain? Why do we have to be the the forefront of climate action? I think you'll find the debate changing very, very quickly. Another another debate that could change pretty quickly is uh, to do with COVID. The health minister, Marianne Thomas in Victoria, is going to sit on two independent investigations, which she's, she's got in her hands, these investigations are into the COVID response and she's going to sit on them till conveniently after the election. This can only mean the reports are critical of the government, in my opinion. Gideon, will this backfire on the government? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I I do tend to think that anybody who has a a bad opinion of Dan Andrews, they, they generally know how they feel by now. And the problem for Matthew Guy and the Liberals is a, a lot of that vote will actually be in, a lot of the anti-Dan vote will be in safe Labor seats. So the, there's a bit of an uphill battle there. Don't forget the people in, in safer Liberal seats, the seats that are under threat from these ridiculous Teal characters, uh, those are people who, you know, had it pretty good during the pandemic. They just sat at home in their jammies on Zoom for a couple of years. Um, that said, uh, there's a reason why these reports aren't coming out. And I think that even among people who are sympathetic to lockdowns or bought into the COVID hysteria, I think uh, they won't want to know that it's all for nothing. And that's what might be in the, the body of these reports that we won't find out. But the most puzzling thing is, you know, if any other, can you imagine if it was Dennis Napthine or Dominic Perrottet or uh, Scott Morrison who were sitting on reports like this so close to an election, we would never hear the end of it. But Dan, as is often observed, nothing nothing uh, seems to tarnish his reputation because I think it's priced into his stock. People know that there's something a bit iffy about Dan Andrews or they have the sense that there's something a bit iffy about Dan Andrews, but he manages to project this getting things done uh, persona, which, which, which seems to make it all uh, okay again. It's a, he's a very, very difficult political phenomenon to understand. He's very Machiavellian, isn't he? I mean, the, the way he oh, blatantly... That he, he so blatantly manipulates the media and release of information and yet gets away with it. Give us, give us a feeling of what, how he gets away with that, Gideon. It's, it's kind of astonishing or bewildering to people outside Victoria. Oh, you could write, I wish I had another 45 minutes to talk about the Tower of Dan Andrews, the way, I mean, there's a science to it. When he's hit with a thorny question, one tactic, which you'll see again and again, is the, uh, the like, how can you even be talking about something like transparency and government accountability? Look, I'm focused on building, you know, delivering for Victorians. I'm not going to waste my time talking about it. So that, that's one way he does it. But the other device he uses is scapegoating. Uh, anybody who lived in Victoria over the past couple of years will tell you that Whenever he was called out about lockdowns, whenever people said it's enough, he'd say, oh, look, it's, it's not the government that's doing this. It's, it's the people who aren't following the rules. 
if those people, those, your next door neighbours, they're the ones to blame, the one who had a couple of mates over. If only they, you know, didn't do that, we'd be out of this sooner. And then it became, of course, blaming it on unvaccinated people. Uh, Dictators Playbook 101, scapegoating. Uh, and, and a lot of good people uh, were tarred, maligned. I mean, there was a couple that had an engagement party that was caught on film. They had to leave the country. It was so bad. Uh, it, yeah. it, 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 it's a very, very, you know, I, I often say, and I say this as a Jewish person myself, uh, with you know a lot of family that perished in the Holocaust, a lot of people said, "How could Germans see what was going on and just stand for it?" Now I know. Now I know. No, I'm not arguing the consequences were anything as dramatic. We are not talking about the same thing. Of course, we are not. But the fear and loathing that was allowed to grip each and every person in this country, uh, the scapegoating of your fellow citizens, the, seeing them as a source of danger, the authoritarianism, the oh, we don't have time for things like you know, he, he, Dan Andrews would literally say, "This isn't about human rights. This is about human life." I'm sorry, once we start abandoning our fundamental democratic principles like that, our fundamental human rights, the fact that the, when we start to be okay with it, uh, history has a way of making that end very, very badly. And we should really think about how we got through that situation in the way that we did and, and what comes next. Yeah, well, as Machiavelli, as Machiavelli himself said, it's better to be feared than loved. Feared than loved. But those people, the, right. the rulers who abide by that always, they always end in tears. Now, just, just very quickly, is it, I mean, pardon my naivety and my optimism, but is there any chance that uh, he will lose in November? Yeah, there's a chance. There's always a chance. And, and, and this is the number one thing I'm asked. You know, people see me on the street and recognise me from the TV work I do or anything else. The number one thing anybody asks is, will he go? Will he go? It's, and, and they're asking that because the polls are obviously not good. Uh, the guy team has done has been a little bit hit and miss in, in its offerings. But I say anything's possible in Victoria. Nobody expected Jeff Kennett to lose in 1999. Nobody expected Ted Bailey to win in 2010. Uh, and Victorians almost always, they have ever since 1996, over 20 years now, uh, they vote against the, the party in government federally. So you never know, my friend, you never know. Don't rule anything in or out at this stage. Have faith. Well, it's a golden opportunity to get rid of uh, what Tony Abbott says is probably the worst, one of the worst governments in Australian history. Now, before you go, there's a big event on somewhere in Victoria, Melbourne, perhaps this weekend, uh, returning to the MCG after two years away, um, the MCG grand final, the, well, the AFL grand final after being in, uh, it was in Perth last year and Brisbane the year before that. I always thought that if anything would inspire Melburnians to rise up against the government during the lockdown, it would be the taking away of the biggest annual event in the state. But Me too. They, they tolerated even that. But anyway, mate, what's the, uh, Gideon, what's the mood in Melbourne now that they've got the, A, uh, the AFL Grand Final back? And who's your tip, the Swans or the Cats? Oh, Geelong's looking pretty decent. Um, I'll probably be barracking for Sydney because I can get better betting odds on them. Um, but look, it, it, you know, this is the problem uh, with this COVID stuff and everything else. Now the grand final's back, we're sort of pretending like it never happened. Uh, what I'd like to see is some contrition, some acknowledgement of what went wrong. But look, in the meantime, uh, you know, the, the great opiate of the masses that is sport, it's a fantastic distraction. So I'll be watching with my wife and a few friends on the weekend. Uh, that quintessentially Victorian past, pastime. Let may never leave the bloody MCG ever again. Exactly, exactly. It's not. It's just not right. It's not at the MCG. Gideon Rosner, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs.
Well, if 19th century Australian artist Frederick McCubbin was still with us today, he probably wouldn't bother painting anything like this iconic image. The 1889 image that symbolised the melancholy and fortitude of the young colony of Australia in McCubbin's time, called Down on His Luck, is itself down on its luck. The Art Gallery of Western Australia has owned the painting since 1896, but, but for the past two years has had it and most of its other traditional treasures stashed away in a storeroom. The ABC reported last week the gallery is, quote, taking a radically different approach as director Colin Walker attempts to attract new audiences while wrestling with the ghosts of colonialism in a new age. Who needs those boring reminders of the stoicism of the people who built the nation when you can have what Walker calls a festival-like atmosphere instead? And how do you create a festival-like atmosphere? Well, it helps to be political. He said, quote, you've got to respond to issues of the day in some shape or form, and you've got to give more space to people and artists and communities and ethnicities who have just not had the access before, unquote. Issues of the day and ethnic representation? What is this, the SBS News? The ABC said the curator of the gallery's historical collections, Melissa Harpley, quote, felt a keen responsibility to look at the gallery's role in society in the contemporary context of Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and climate change, unquote. Here's a tip for any gallery that wants to be relevant in the age of Black Lives Matter. Leave some Molotov cocktails and a box of matches near your door so middle-class white kids can hurl them at the gallery's walls in the name of social justice. Because, you know, Black Lives Matter. Anyway, it turns out the gallery will let you see the McCubbin painting again now. But it's in a room surrounded by Aboriginal paintings, because otherwise it wouldn't be relevant. The world is a different place, Harpley told the ABC, and we can't be, quote, mired down in an old version of pretending everything's rosy because maybe it isn't, unquote. McCubbin would be amused, to say the least, to hear an art gallery curator of all people describe down on his luck as rosy. Well, the words emergency and housing usually only appear beside each other in Australia after a crisis like a flood or a bushfire. But they appeared in Queensland on the weekend after Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk admitted housing in the state had become a crisis as a result of, she didn't say this bit out loud, her government's incompetence. Griffith University announced it would provide 200 unused beds at its Mount Gravatt campus for emergency use. Palaszczuk said, quote, this will increase accommodation available for people in need and help solve one of the multiple housing issues. Nothing is more important than having a roof over your head. It's a basic need. And the stories of people without secure housing are heartbreaking, unquote. Well, not heartbreaking enough for the Premier to use all the options available to fix the problem, as my next guest, former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker, will explain. But first, this story isn't from, this next story isn't from Queensland, but it's a disturbing one. 
nonetheless, and it should concern us all. Sophie Tawney is an independent, otherwise known as a teal, candidate for Q in Melbourne, the seat that is being vacated by Liberal Tim Smith. It's a safe conservative seat. Tawney supports abortion. On, on Saturday night, an anti-abortion activist poured kerosene through the front door of her campaign office. This is not as bad as the attack on the offices of the Australian Christian Lobby in Canberra in 2017, which was firebombed, but it's still very disturbing. Now let's bring in Amanda to discuss this. Amanda, welcome. Thanks, Fred. Lovely to be with you. Isn't this a sad story emanating from Victoria? It is. Well, we're lucky to not see this kind of political violence very often in Australia, but it is important for all sides to condemn it, uh, whichever side it comes from, don't you think? Look, I think that's right. It's still a case where the facts of what happened are emerging and it's not clear to me how they've identified that this fellow um, is an anti-abortion activist. But quite frankly, no matter what the issue is and no matter what the political bent of the candidate, um, nothing of this nature is ever appropriate. And if this person is someone with a pro-life worldview, he really isn't helping the cause of what are the beliefs of a wide range of really very moderate and sensible Australians who want to see the human rights of all people protected, including those um, who are not yet born. He's really doing a great disservice to people who believe in that cause if he's doing it um, out of a politically motivated act. And so whatever the political issue and whoever the candidate is, this stuff is not on. Far better to take on Sophie Tawney, the Teal Independent, for the fact that she says she's independent but in fact is funded by the Climate 200 and, and Big Solar and Big Climate um, and its lobby. Far better to take her on for the illogicality of her policies or the inability of her to deliver were she to be elected. Um, if people are looking for a good, sensible and measured candidate that reflects the wide range of views in that community, then they'd be far better off with Jess Wilson, the Liberal candidate. Agreed. But what is it about the abortion debate that raises temperatures so high, do you think? It's an emotive issue um, and it hasn't been helped by the fact that um, those who are passionate and those in the media want to frame it as a pro-life, pro-choice issue. I mean, the fact of the matter is most Australians believe that there should be um, more support for people who find themselves in unplanned pregnancy. Most people believe that very late-term abortion is wrong um, because it ends a human life. And then there's an area in the middle, um, particularly in those early stages of pregnancy, where there are reasonable people who can disagree. But to treat it as a polarising issue, you know, if you're not for it, you're against it, rather than working constructively to better support people who face this vulnerability, I think does great harm. It brings out the nutters on both sides rather than allowing it to be the kind of issue where sensible people get together and do what we all know is in the interests of vulnerable women and importantly, vulnerable babies. Well said, well said. Now let's talk about um, housing in Queensland. Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk held a roundtable conference in Brisbane on Friday. Amanda, who was there and what did they achieve? It's a funny thing, isn't it? 
Last week on Tuesday, um, Premier Palaszczuk announces an October summit on housing and a roundtable you've referred to last Friday. At the roundtable, stakeholders and the Premier and the Minister got together and they were supposed to be talking through solutions to what is a real shortage of housing for people who need to rent and particularly rent at the lower price point here in Queensland. Now, that all sounds good on paper, but it doesn't take into account a couple of important things. The first is, if the Premier and the Minister don't know what the issues are in this field seven years into government, well, then quite frankly, they're incompetent. Um, they have one job in this field, one job, <laughs> and they're not doing it. In fact, it's got mighty worse. The next thing to say is that while in one breath they're talking about a housing crisis that they're committed to fixing, just a few days before, in a previous breath, they were changing the rules for land tax that had the effect of reducing the supply of rental property available in Queensland. And that is just one of a succession of policies that have been brought into effect by Queensland Labor that are making housing more expensive, in shorter supply and less accessible to the most needy people in our community. Well, tell us more about those policies. I mean, how is the government, for example, restricting supply of new housing? So the supply of new housing is being constrained in a number of ways. Um, the obvious one is that they're not releasing the land for development in the project home estates that so often ring our cities. And they're really important for people who either work in those areas or who aspire to get onto the property ladder in a house they can build themselves. Um, and that just isn't an option oftentimes closer to the city. But there are other less obvious ways that their policies are harming. I mentioned changes to land tax. What Labor have done in what they might think is a canny political move is to say that everyone who isn't a Queenslander, who invests in Queensland property as well as elsewhere, will have the decision about whether or not they're eligible, um, whether they fit under the tax-free threshold, and the rate at which they pay land tax assessed on the basis of the property they own everywhere, not just in Queensland. Now, this is a radical change and its practical effect is to charge people who aren't Queenslanders higher rates of land tax. Now, you might think that that just means that the people who are going to have a vote aren't going to be affected by the tax, but by making a disincentive for people to become landlords in Queensland, a disincentive to invest, you're taking rental supply out of the market and you're stopping people from investing in future supply. Another example of the kind of policies they've brought in that have done harm is to rebalance tenancy laws in a way that tips the scales well and truly in favour of tenant. And that means it's a less attractive place for a landlord to invest. Why would you go to a jurisdiction where you've got no rights when you can have more control over your property in a more friendly jurisdiction? In addition to that, um, they have an ideological bent against community housing, which is when not-for-profits come in and help to provide some of that low-cost um, accessible housing. And as a consequence, while New South Wales and Victoria and other states are getting hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investment from the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation to go into low-cost housing, Queensland has only $5 million because they want to see it all government-owned. They don't want to bring in the community. And the combined effect of all of this stuff 
is just to deepen a crisis that is really of Labor's making. Can you just elaborate on that federal financing, though? How, how does that work? So the National Housing um, Finance and Investment Corporation is a federal body, and its job is to assess applications for um, low or no interest loans to, um, and the pool is well over a billion dollars, to go to not-for-profit and community organisations who want to develop sustainable models for providing low-cost housing in the parts of our community that need it most. The difference is uh, between a big government, uh, which inevitably means big expense model, like what Queensland wants to see, and they want that because construction through the Department of Public Works is union controlled and they get to help their mates in the CFMMEU and the like, versus something that's more flexible, more adapted to the communities that are being served and that are going to be managed by, in essence, the community. And they don't like that. They want to keep their fingers in the pie and the assets on their balance sheet. Ultimately, this comes down to Labor wanting to help their union mates in Queensland, as well as um, keep any help they can get on their balance sheet, when what they should be focused on instead is how do we stop vulnerable women from sleeping with their kids in cars? How do we stop uh, people with mental health concerns from sleeping on our streets? Um, there are solutions that are paying dividends in other states, and it is downright irresponsible for Queensland to refuse to even look at them. So my scepticism when uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk said the situation was heartbreaking was justified. She never seems really all that <laughs> sincere, does she? But well, look, there's a, there's a really good quote from the Council of Social Services that came out over the weekend. And th the Council of Social Services said, quote, right now, working Queenslanders and families are living in tents, Women and children are returning to, to domestic violence relationships and elderly people are sleeping on couches because there's nowhere else for them to go. Amanda, is it really that grim in Queensland? Look, I think for a um, small group of people, it is that grim. The number of people who are waiting for public housing in Queensland exceeds 30,000 people. It's a lot of people. And when you think that Oh, that's a number of applications. When you think that each application often includes families rather than just one person, the number of people involved, you know, could be double that. The other thing to take into account, I think, is that there's something really ugly about the way that Labor is framing this. The housing crisis is almost being blamed on interstate migration. We've had 30,000 people come to Queensland over the last year, um, and that is unusually high, although I'd suggest to you that it reflects a bit of a lag from um, the COVID era when people were locked away and not able to affect their otherwise happy plans of migrating to the Sunshine State. But instead of dealing with the problem and accepting responsibility, Deputy Premier Stephen Miles and the Premier have in essence said it's the fault of Southerners who want to live here that some people are going without housing. And that's just false. It is more of that parochial politics of division that's about blaming those in the other states for the problems that are of Labor's own making. It's almost shades of, you know, Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders that we heard during the pandemic. Um, 
you know, it's these Southerners that are causing our problems. The data shows that is just false. And quite frankly, um, we should be rejoicing at the fact that working productive people from the other states would want to come and help here um, to pay taxes, to contribute to our economy, and quite frankly, get this state out of the enormous hole Labor's dug us into. Well, speaking of xenophobia towards Southerners, there's a good story coming out of America at the moment. The uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida in the United States, pranked the woke millionaires of Martha's Vineyard, including Barack Obama, by flying in 50 illegal immigrants who normally have to reside in, in border states into the, at the South. The residents took a break from their usual virtue signaling to organise buses to ship these illegal migrants to poorer neighbourhoods where they belong. Amanda, isn't woke hypocrisy just hilarious? Look, points to um, Governor DeSantis for really showing these people for what they are. Um, if you preach the politics of open arms and open borders, then you need to be prepared to allow those consequences into your daily life. It's not enough to say compassion's great, but somebody else has to do it. It's the very same attitude we see in climate policy. You know, we want climate action, but somebody else has to do it. We want refugee compassion, but somebody else has got to do it. Um, the, the politics of compassion starts with the individual. And so I think he's very wisely shown everyone um, that it's what we choose to do day to day that matters and not what we are prepared to shout for near the ballot box. Well, as they say in Martha's Vineyard, hate is not welcome here and neither are illegal immigrants. Amanda, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Red. That's former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker. Well, before I go, former Federal Coalition Education Minister Alan Tudge recently identified the problems in our education system that Alan Jones's listeners and viewers have known about for years. Former Minister Tudge said in The Australian on Friday, quote, during the past two decades, real person, uh, real per student funding has increased by 60%, yet standards have declined by the equivalent of a year's worth of learning by year 10. Tudge went on to say that teachers unions will try to convince his successor in the Labor government to fix the problem with money, but it won't work. Money's not the answer. Really? Tudge might have told this to his colleague, Josh Frydenberg, who as federal treasurer in March, boasted that the record amount of taxpayers' money he had allocated for schools would, quote, ensure that all students are equipped with the necessary skills as part of our plan for a stronger future, unquote. Isn't it strange that Tudge was part of a government that boasted about spending unprecedented amounts of money on schools, but now that he is not in government, says money alone can't fix the problem. Is it any wonder that people are sick of politics? Tudge was the last of four federal education ministers in the coalition government between 2013 and 2022. It was under his watch that the new national curriculum was approved. This curriculum, which will be introduced next year, filters every subject taught in our schools, every subject, through the so-called cross-curriculum priority topics of 
Indigenous history, Australia's engagement with Asia, and sustainability. So Australia's Indigenous people, our kids are told, quote, have worked scientifically for millennia and continue to provide significant contributions to developments in science, unquote. And the sustainability part will, quote, empower students to design action that will lead to a more equitable and sustainable future, unquote. By equitable, they mean everyone gets to freeze in the dark when the lights go out because solar panels and windmills don't work. This rubbish was waved through by Tudge. Curiously, his critique of the failing education system last week neglected to mention that our kids are being indoctrinated by leftist ideologues. He ended his piece by saying, improvements can be achieved, but, quote, only if the resolve is there, a resolve that is yet to be seen from the Labor government. He forgot to mention it wasn't seen for the entire duration of his own government. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow at 8 p.m. for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at 9 p.m. Good night.